Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Genesis chapter 3, and we're basically about at the halfway point of our series for the summer. Okay, The idea of killing sin's roots. If there's any of you that haven't been here yet. Um, and super brief overview of what we've looked at thus far has been that sin starts with doubt. That's kind of the first little root of sin is when we start to doubt uh, God specifically. Um, Satan is lying, tempting, accusing, slandering. Uh, we begin to doubt God, and then that turns into a type of pride. Well, if God's not going to be a good God and provide for me, then I have to provide for myself. And we kind of rise up in pride and this sinful kind of ambition. And then that leads to coveting. We start looking out at the good gifts of God and saying, well, if I'm really going to be happy, I'm really going to provide for myself. Well, I have to have that. I have to have it now, my way, right away. That's what we looked at last week. And you might think, well, we're done. Series is over. Okay, thanks very much. You don't even have to come back. Uh, those are the roots. Now we get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and there's full-blown sin, uh, but not so fast. Okay, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So at this point, in some sense, we're not even talking about sin's roots anymore. Full-blown sin has been conceived. It's been born. It's happened. And yet we're not done. Uh, and there's just a few points by way of introduction that I want to make. The first thing is this. Who actually committed the first sin? <coughs> this would be the cloud, crowd, crowd participation part, okay? And, uh, and, 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 you know, and listen, we're all secure in Christ, I hope. So take a guess, even if you're not sure, okay? Who committed the first sin? Okay, Satan. I heard somebody say Adam, but then they got saved, all right? Because that, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Satan actually committed the first sin. Now, you know, here's, here's why I want to make this point. And just hang with me, and it, and it will become apparent why this is important later. All people, okay, from Adam and Eve down to me and you, were actually victims and were also villains. And here's what I mean. Uh, we sin against other people, right? There was really about three different directions of sin going on in the garden. And Satan came and he sinned against Adam and Eve because he lied to them he deceived them. That's sin. Okay? They were sinned against before they sinned. But then they both sinned. Adam sinned against God, but he also sinned against Eve, did he not? He was a passive husband. He wasn't a good leader. Eve sinned against God. That's the worst thing. But she also sinned against her husband because she encouraged him and helped him in her sin. So this matrix of sin that we find ourselves in is not just simple and clean cut, right? It's like, well, I'm a sinner against God. Yes, that's true. And in some sense, that's the most important truth, but it's not the only truth. I'm also a victim of other people and even spiritual entities sinning against me. Okay, Now, sometimes we start talking about being a victim, especially in kind of our upper middle class Western world, we get really nervous because we think, you know, there's a lot of people out there in the culture that use the victim card to excuse their sin, and don't worry, I'm not going there. Okay, I mean, if, if you know anything about me, that I, I'm not trying to make us feel less responsible for our sin. If anything, I'm trying to make us feel more responsible. Okay? The second kind of point by way of introduction. And, and let me just give, because you may say, well, yeah, Olin, but this was in the garden. We don't live in the garden now, right? We're born with a sin nature. We're good Presbyterians. We believe that. Not because we're Presbyterians, because it's what the Bible teaches. Yes. But experientially, our battle with sin doesn't always start out feeling like I started as a villain. Although I did, right? Because we're all born in sin. Here's what I mean. 
Imagine a little girl that from ages three to nine is sexually molested by her uncle. Now, is that little girl a sinner? Yeah, because we're all sinners. But experientially, she feels a lot more like a victim at that moment than a villain, does she not? And in that one specific instance, she is a victim. Nobody wants to say, you're guilty, three-year-old girl. I mean, you're guilty before the courtroom of God for other sins, but you're certainly not guilty for that sin, right? Okay. I know it just got really uncomfortable, but we've got to talk about this kind of stuff, okay? The second thing that I want to say by way of introduction, and and sometimes I say I don't want the Sunday school answer. On this one, I do want the Sunday school answer, okay? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, I mean, as soon as they sinned and they were aware of it, what should have they done? What should have been their first move or word? I mean, what should have been their first action? Repentance. Repentance, right? They should have run to God and said, forgive us. But that's not what they're going to do, right? They're going to run away from God and say, we got this. They should have run to God begging for forgiveness, and yet they ran in the opposite direction thinking, we can fix this. And our knee-jerk reaction is often the same, is it not? And then third, remember how chapter 2 ended, naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to fake. They were right with themselves, they were right with one another, they were right with God. But as soon as sin comes in, it ruins all that. And what we're really, in some sense, looking at today is shame and our sinful ways of dealing with shame. Okay? So, uh, we hide from others. We hide from God and we hide from ourselves. That's what we're going to look at. So the first thing, okay, is we hide from others. And why? Because we feel shame. We feel disgraced. And rightly so. Now the word is not, the word shame is not in chapter 3, but it's the implication. Okay, it ends chapter 2 saying they were naked and unashamed. And the first thing they do when they sin is they try to cover up because they feel this sense of shame. Okay, look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made loin coverings for themselves. Now, Again, I do want the Sunday school answer on this one. Uh, we're just going to say sin screws up our relationships with God, with one another, and even to some degree with ourselves. Which relationship should we be the most concerned to fix the quickest? When in doubt, the answer is always God and Jesus, right? Okay, right. But hey, listen, here is part of the insidious nature of sin is it warps the way that we view everything. And so their first response is not to worry about their relationship with God. It's to worry about their relationship with one another. Doesn't that sound like me and you? I mean, how much time and energy do we spend trying to put our best foot forward in front of other people when we know God knows the truth? And the time that we spend on trying to work on that relationship is often far smaller than the time and energy we put in trying to micromanage our appearance, and our reputation from other people. Sin ruins human relationships, right? I mean, two minutes ago, they had been best friends. Sinless spouses, right? Perfect lovers. Everything was wonderful in the world. And now they're like, I don't trust you. I don't feel comfortable with you. I got to cover up. I got to hide. Let me grab the biggest leaf I can find and try to make some kind of loin covering or an apron or something. They're terrified. Now, um, they feel shame. Here's just a layman's definition of shame. Okay, I mean, guilt is in a sense, I did something wrong. That deed was wrong and I feel bad about it. It's guilt. Shame in a sense go deeper. If guilt is, 
I did something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. I mean, something's broken within me. You know, there is a lot of talk in the church and the secular world about shame. And a, and a lot of times people are like, you should never feel shame. But that's not true. Right? If you've sinned, you should feel shameful about your sin. The question about all this is, what do you do with your shame? Where do you take your shame? Where does our shame drive us? And that's what we're going to try to drill down deep on this morning. Now let me also say this. There is a type of shame that you can feel for something that you didn't do, but that was done to you. Right? And there are times we can feel shame. I mean, remember Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, sometimes we can feel ashamed of the gospel. We can be embarrassed of it, right? There, there are wrong types of shame that you shouldn't feel. But there's also right types of shame that we should feel, at least momentarily, before we deal with them in the right way. So here's just a phrase that may be helpful to y'all. It's been helpful to me as I've thought about it. Hard people are hurt people. And you understand what I mean by that? Most of us, when we've been hurt by somebody else, when we've been sinned against when we've been taken advantage of. Our natural response is put up the wall. Put up the guard. Hey, don't, don't do a show of hands on this one, okay? But do you have anybody in your life, a friend, a co-worker, a family member maybe, that you're trying to get to know, you're trying to get to love, you're trying maybe to minister to, but the more you kind of try to step in and press in and ask some questions, it's almost like the walls go up higher. The mask gets fitted a little bit more tightly. And it's like there are all these nonverbal cues saying, leave me alone, back off, I'm fine. I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm not comfortable. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that can rub me the wrong way. I'm like, oh, you're going to put your wall up. I'll just run into your wall harder. Which nine times out of ten is not the right response. Because it's taken me about 40 plus years of life to figure this out. But nine times out of ten, when somebody's putting their wall up like that, it seems to us like, man, they're just a prideful, arrogant, hard. Really, they're hurt and they're wounded. Now, listen, I'm not saying they don't have any sin responsibility. Of course they have sin responsibility. But I ought to be more gentle in the way that I pursue them because usually when somebody's putting their guard up like that, trying to put their best foot forward, it's because they're fearful. They're ashamed. And they're trying to protect themselves, although they're doing it in a sinful way. Okay, uh, Jim Boyce, great... Uh, PCA pastor from 10th Prez in Philadelphia years ago said this, that nakedness was psychological as well as physical, right? It wasn't just they were physically naked, they were, but it was psychological. They felt exposed to one another. They felt guilty. Their conscience had been aroused. And the most common fig leaf in the world is good works, right? It's good works. We, we try to put our best foot forward. Look at all the good I'm doing. I know I'm not perfect, I'm not Jesus, I'm not even Billy Graham, but I'm actually a pretty darn good person. Well, you just look at all these good works I'm doing and back off. <laughs> Quit asking me all these hard questions, okay? Um, usually, when we sin and we get convicted, our first kind of step is, is what I would call kind of the tough guy, the tough girl persona. I'm fine, everything's fine here, nothing to see. Keep calm, carry on. You know, keep a stiff upper lip. Never let them see you sweat. I'm fine. I'm doing great. I don't need any help. No, that doesn't last very long. But that's what we try to do. And guys, we are experts at image management. And again, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-technology. I know I'm going to sound like that before the end of this quarter is over. But one of the dangers of social media 
is it just takes our expert level of image management that we already had and it just takes it to the nth degree, does it not? But even if you're like, I'm not on social media, I don't know how to work an iPhone, that's probably a blessing in a lot of ways, we naturally know how to do this sinful image management, always trying to put our best foot forward. Paul David Tripp, he wrote a great book, I think it came out maybe last year or two years ago, called Lead. And really what it's about, it's about people in full-time ministry. I mean, it applies to anybody, but he really specifically wrote it about people in full-time ministry who get into sin. And I think probably he wrote it in some degree to a response of some of this stuff like Robbie Zacharias and all this stuff happening. You know, people are like, how can this happen? And some of it he wrote this book. Okay, Now, listen to this quote. It's really good. And, and while I'm reading it, you're like, we're not in full-time ministry, Owen. But it, it's kind of like, listen, if this can happen to pastors and professional paid clergy, it can happen to us. Right? So, pride and confession are enemies. All members of your community, and again, he's talking about a church leadership team, are regularly tempted to think that their sin is something less than sin. You ever tempted to think that about your sin? We're able to name our anger as zeal. We are skilled at calling our impatience a desire to move forward. We are tempted to call gospel the sharing of prayer requests. Being power and control hunger gets recast as exercising God-given leadership gifts. Every leadership community needs to regularly cry out for help, admitting that sin doesn't always look sinful. This exchange is not dramatic, but rather a subtle and often long-term process. Likely, no one goes into ministry saying, I'm going to make ministry my identity. But along the way, something happens. When you look horizontally for your sense of self, you understand what he's saying there? People can go into ministry maybe with a lot of great motives, but then at some point they're kind of like, I still got a lot of issues. I don't have to be honest with people about my issues. So let me just kind of boast in all this I'm doing for the Lord. And that kind of starts to become your sense of self. Listen, I've got a friend who's a PCA pastor who's going through a divorce right now. Talked to him recently. You know, the, the danger, the more you're really involved in ministry and, and, and church circles it is, you get to where you know all the lingo really well. And you can weaponize it and use it as a defense, right? He said so many good things. So many right things. But the bottom line was, I, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And I think i got a justification for it. Okay? It can happen to the best of us. And here's the thing. We try to put on our fig leaf righteousness, but it never really works. Okay, here's another quote from Paul David Tripp. Your hyper-attentiveness crushes your peace of heart, leaving worry, concern, anxiety, or fear in its place. It's a vicious cycle because the more you pay attention, the more you find reason to be concerned. The more you're concerned, the more you pay attention. When you look horizontally for what you have already been given vertically, the things you look at will always fail you. You understand what he's saying? If you decide what's going to make me feel good about myself, my dignity, my sense of self-worth, my identity is going to come from how other people view me, it'll never satisfy the depths of your soul. And the more you kind of start drilling in, I wonder if people like me, I wonder if they respect me, I wonder what they think of me. Was she just talking about me? What did he say? It's a lose-lose game. Because we do have this God-shaped void in our heart, and if you try to fill it with lesser things, it'll never fill full, and it will just be a downward spiral. It'll lead to fear. And you say, well, where do we see that in the text? Well, just look at the next verse, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid 
themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. The fig leaf coverings didn't work. Maybe they felt like they worked for a moment with other humans, but as soon as there was a sense of the presence of God coming near, they're terrified again. It doesn't work. You certainly can't hide from God. You may be able to fake other people out. You can't fake out God. And they're left terrified. It's not just that we attempt to hide from other people. We, in some sense, attempt to hide from God. They run away. Now, what Adam says in verse 10 is very interesting. Okay? Listen, when God says, Adam, where are you? Right. It's not like God's playing hide and seek and he doesn't know where Adam is. God is not asking a question to get information. This is a little bit like, remember when you had younger children, if after dinner you tell your children, no more cookies. I mean it, right? I'm going upstairs, take a shower, give me five minutes apiece, right? Maybe this doesn't work this way in your house, but hypothetically it's worked this way in our house before. And when I come down, there better be no more cookies eaten. Get ready for bed, brush your teeth. And you come down and one of your kids has just got, you know, chocolate chips all over his face. And you say, did you eat the cookies that I told you not to eat? You're not a detective trying to solve a crime. At some level, you're trying to elicit a confession. And that's what God is trying to do here. But really, if you, if you look at this in the Hebrew, Adam in his sense, okay, and, and in the Hebrew, they didn't have exclamation points. So if you wanted to emphasize something, you put it at the very front of the sentence. If you wanted to de-emphasize something, you put it at the end of the sentence. Remember that. That will matter in a minute. And in this sentence, Adam's response, he kind of says, You're sound! It scared me. And it's almost like he's trying to blame God. You, you sounded scary, God. You came after me. You were a little aggressive there. That's why I'm scared. Notice, he says, well, it's because I was naked and I heard your voice. Well, that really doesn't answer the question, does it? He'd been naked his whole life, literally. He had talked to God before. He had heard God's voice before. So the combination of nakedness and hearing God's voice was no cause for fear. So remember what we've been saying about Satan this whole quarter? that part of what makes him such a crafty, efficient liar is a lot of times his lies are rooted in a ton of truth. He doesn't necessarily say a bunch of stuff that's 100% objectively wrong. He says a lot of true stuff, but he spends it just enough to get enough deceit in there to make even the truth end up having a deceptive influence on us. Right? Now Adam, after he ate the forbidden fruit, he didn't become more like God, he became more like Satan. He's doing the same thing. Where are you, Adam? Well, I heard the sound of your voice. I was naked. I was afraid. I ran. All of that's true, right? It's all factual. But did any of it really answer the question? And aren't we experts in that as well? Okay. Listen, most of us, like I said, we start out trying to put our best foot forward. Everything's fine here. I got this. No problems. But when the conviction keeps pressing in, a lot of times then we start to swing the pendulum to the other side. Woe is me. Life's so hard. You have to understand. I'm scared and it's hard and I've just been going. I know I probably did something wrong, but it's not really my fault. I mean, we can be experts at playing the victim card to get out of stuff. And again, here's what makes the victim card so effective. There usually is an element of truth in it, right? But we overplay it to emphasize it and make it sound like it's not really my fault. I don't really bear any responsibility here. I'm just a sad little wounded victim and you just need to show tons of mercy to me. Please don't ever accuse me of doing anything wrong. 
in modern day, right? Again, it's like, well, they were walking around in a garden and God was coming after them like physically. But in modern day, if somebody wants to hide from God, practically speaking, how do we do that today? find other things to distract you. You don't go to church. You don't go to Bible study. You don't go to your accountability group. You don't read your Bible. You don't listen to Christian music. You don't. You, you find anything else to distract you. And listen, it doesn't have to be scandalous stuff. You don't have to be looking at pornography. You can just be scrolling through sweet pictures of your grandkids for hours. There's nothing wrong. I know, I got too close to home there. Okay, I've nothing wrong with scrolling. <laughs> pictures of your grandkids. Okay, start to say something. That's a great point, Gary. We, we can take gospel truths and we can spin them and pervert them to where all we want to talk about is the love and the mercy of God. And we, we forget the holiness, the justice of God. That's another way, right? I mean, Thomas Jefferson, you know, had his famous Bible where he didn't believe in miracles, so he just went through and cut out all the miracles of Jesus but kept the ethical teachings. I don't know if people do that as much today, okay? But what a lot of people do is, like Gary's saying, mentally they go through, and any of the hard sayings of Jesus are like, I'm just going to skip that. It probably doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. <laughs> you know? Give me some more of those sweet verses. Listen, and listen, I'm all for the sweet verses. Let's don't take the sweet verses out. But i got to take the sweet and the hard sayings. It's a great point. Here's what I've said. Listen, it's really hard. It's harder to hide from God in one sense when you're in full-time ministry, right? It's like I get paid to read the Bible. I quit doing that, I get fired, right? So i got to feed my family. So how do I hide from God? No silence. Just be busy. Even busy with the Lord's work. Right? I'm always preparing to teach other people and never slowing down to say, what might the Lord want to say to me? Impress upon me and convict me. Yes, we're, we're experts at it. This one might be the most insidious. They hid from one another. They hid from God. And in some sense, they tried to hide from themselves. And we do the same thing. What do I mean by that? They, they felt shame. They tried to hide from one another. They felt fear. They tried to hide from God. And at some level, they feel like this sense of insecurity. Right? I mean, God, God knows, Adam... I love you, buddy. You're playing games with me. I'm not letting you off the hook with that fake answer. I'm going to keep coming after you. So look at verse 11. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? He's like, I'm going to give you a softball, Adam. I'm going to make this real easy for you. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now before I read verse 12, remember what I said earlier about Hebrew. You want to emphasize something? You put it at the front of the sentence. You want to de-emphasize something? You put it at the end of the sentence. Look at this masterful Hebrew sentence by our boy Adam. The man said, The woman whom you came to be with me, she gave me from the tree and ate. Right? I mean, he blames the woman twice, right? It's the woman who you gave to me. It was her. I don't know if I emphasize that enough already, God. It's her fault, dead gummit. But yes, technically I did eat. I mean, let's be honest. This is the worst confession of all time. <laughs> it's taking the confession. Okay? And listen, I, I'm going to say this, and I, there is no political motivation in this, but I just think it will resonate with most of us. Okay? This is what I like to call Bill Clinton repentance. <laughs> right? I didn't do it. I didn't do that. You get busted. Like, okay, I guess technically I did it. 
There's no real remorse or brokenness. It's just like, I'm caught red-handed. What else can I say at this point? You know, Pastor Reader likes to say leadership works. I mean, it works for better or it works for worse. And just total side note, men, you're the leader of your household whether you want to be or you don't want to be. Whether you're trying to be or you're not trying to be, you are. It's just the way God set up the universe to work. So Adam led in this kind of blame-shifting, minimizing, and Eve is going to follow suit. She's like, two can play at this game. You want to blame me? I'll go one a little theologically better on you, Adam. I'll blame Satan. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Listen, how do we hide from ourselves? We're masters of rationalizing. We're masters of spinning the story, making ourselves feel better about ourselves, minimizing, blame-shifting, anything so that we don't have to bear the full weight of our guilt for what we did. Right? Well, technically I did sin, but you've got to understand the circumstances, and she started it, and he did this, and I mean technically, but in comparison it's not that bad. John MacArthur, the basic reluctance of sinful people to admit their iniquity is established here. Jim Boyce, we even cover up in the act of confessing wrongs. You hear what he's saying there? Okay. Let's don't do a show of hands on this one either. But have any of you ever been in some type of accountability group setting or maybe just that accountability group called marriage, right? And you're trying to resolve the fight that happened and you're like, okay, I know I'm caught red-handed here. i got to confess to something, but I don't want to own it everything. So it's like, yeah, well, technically I did this, but I didn't do that. We even become masters in our confessions, of not really confessing. Okay. Um, C.S. Lewis, this, this quote is great. Listen to this. So convicting. We have never told the whole truth. We may confess ugly facts, but the tone is false. The very act of confessing, an infinitely small hypocritical glance, a dash of humor, all this contrives to disassociate the facts from your very self. You hear what he's saying there? I mean, we are experts. And even when we say all the right stuff we're supposed to say, of giving off nonverbal cues, saying, ah, but, you know, that didn't really define me. Not really my fault. Matthew Henry. The excuses men make to cover their sins like the fig leaves, they make the matter never the better, but the worse. The shame thus hidden becomes the more shameful. Have you not experienced that in your own life? You feel shame, you don't want to tell anybody, so you cover it up. You might feel better in the moment. In the long run, it festers. It becomes more shameful. It's worse. Now, application. I would highly encourage you this week, spend some time praying and thinking, how do I tend to lie to others, lie to God, lie to myself, hide from others, cover up towards God, even try to deceive myself at some level. And again... If you're like, I don't really know, just ask your spouse, and I bet you'll have a really interesting conversation. Okay. Again, oftentimes we start by playing the tough guy or the tough girl card, covering up. I'm doing fine. Look at all my righteousness. Got this. And then if somebody can kind of press past that first offense, we often will swing the pendulum all the way to the side. You're right. I know I did something wrong, but you just have to understand. Things are so hard and not my fault. And please have a... Which, nine times out of ten, that's just a game. 
I'm going to throw a pity party right here in front of you so you'll throw a pity party for me and maybe you'll back off. And then if even that doesn't work, we kind of retreat into the inner recesses of our minds and say, well, technically I guess I did something wrong, but it's not that bad. I mean, look at all the other people in the world. Compared to them, I'm a genius. Compared to them, I might be Billy Graham. Now, let me, let me just give you a, a real practical personal example, okay? Um, probably the sin that I struggle with the most currently in life is a lack of gentleness in conversation, especially with my sons, when I perceive that they do something wrong. So I could give really specific examples, even from last week, okay? But I'm going to kind of give a generic one because I just have seen this thing play out. Me and one of my sons will have a conversation. And usually, okay, and I, this is me being as objective as I know how to be, they start it. They start out saying something stupid, saying something arrogant, saying something insensitive. And I try to step in as the dad, as the authority, kind of press back a little bit. Maybe I start from a good place. They don't respond well. Like I said, I tend to come over the top, right? Oh, you want to raise the temperature in the room of this conversation? I'll see you one and raise you one. The conversation will get over. I'll go to my room. My wife is a lot like God in this situation. Not in every way. She's a great wife. But in this, in this situation, she's a lot like God. She'll come up to the bedroom very tenderly, pursuing me. And sometimes, you know, she, she's wise. She says, well, how do you think that went, honey? <laughs> and my first response oftentimes will be like, I think it went pretty well. <laughs> right? I didn't yell. didn't raise my voice. I didn't cuss, right? Everything I said was factual. I stayed pretty calm. What, what am I doing? It, it, it's, listen, it's, it's very minor, but here's my fig leaf righteousness, honey. And she'll say, hmm, that's interesting. And she'll say, I really think you hurt his feelings. You're right, you didn't yell, but I think even your tone of voice, your facial expression, your body language, you were condescending. He won't say it. Because he's too prideful. But I know my son enough, you hurt his feelings. At this point, I know she's right. I mean, listen, I knew she was right as soon as she started talking. But I thought I could get it with the brushback pitch, right? So I'm like, I know, babe, but dadgummit, I mean, I didn't yell, he did yell. I didn't cuss, he did cuss. You know, it's like, and then his brother came in and kind of jumped in. I was like, I mean, I, I felt like I handled it pretty well. I mean, they were the ones being disrespectful. What, what am I doing? I'm a 45-year-old man playing the victim card. And listen, I hate the victim card. But when push comes to shove, I can play it with the best of them. <laughs> Can't you? And then if she's like, I know, I understand all that. He's got a lot of sin he's got to deal with. And she didn't have to finish the sentence, right? Because I'm a preacher. I'll finish it for her. I know, but i got to deal with my stuff for the Lord. And she's like, great. I mean, in a lot of ways, she really is like God in that. But then in my mind, it's kind of like, why is she making such a big deal about this? I've gotten so much better. I used to yell and cuss, right? Can we just celebrate the progress I've made? <laughs> right? And listen, you know what all, you know what I'm doing in all of that? Listen, in maybe the most minor way, I'm trying to self-protect from my wife. Who's my best? We got, listen, we're not perfect. We got a great marriage. I love my wife. Best friend in the universe, times 10, compared to anybody else. Love her. But if she wants to come too close, I want to push back just a little bit. I re- listen, I really do. I'm not perfect, but I love the Lord. 
when that conviction starts to sink in, I want to God, look at all the crap I'm dealing with. Give me a break. And then I even want to try to self-justify my mind. You, you see what I'm saying? And guys, why are we doing this still? Because that's the root of so much of our sin, is our sinful hiding, our sinful covering up, our sinful schemes and strategies to protect ourselves from the right place of shame and guilt in our life. Okay. Now, just um, reading a book about World War I, at the very end of World War I, uh, the Germans lose, they surrendered, and there's this lowly soldier, he's in a hospital, he's wounded, he hears about the surrender, and he's, he's overwhelmed, he's angry, he's confused. He wrote this in his diary or whatever he had. The more I tried to achieve clarity on the monstrous event in this hour, the more the shame of indignation and disgrace burned my brow. The misery. In the days that followed, my own fate became known to me. I resolved to go into politics. You see what he's saying? I mean, he felt overwhelmed. Shame. What's happened to me and my nation? It's disgraceful. I've got to do something. I'll go into politics. I'll do something good. I'll fix this. Anybody want to take a guess who that was? Hitler. Hitler. If we don't deal with our shame in the right way, it will lead to terrible consequences. Probably none of us are going to, you know, become Hitler anytime soon and start World War III. You might start World War III in your family, though. Now, here's one of, I think, our defenses internally when we start hearing some of this. But, oh, we're Christians. We live in New Testament times. We're not just Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Sinclair Ferguson. The psychology of the old life can take much longer to shift than its theology. We understand the gospel, yet there's a continuity in the person who lived under the law's condemnation and knew nothing of God's grace in Christ. You understand what Sinclair Ferguson, maybe the greatest theologian alive today, is saying? He's saying you can have pristine theology, but your psychology still be more like a non-Christian sometimes because you're so used to living like a non-Christian. Okay, Richard Lovelace says this, we must carry out a very deliberate replacement of this misunderstanding with the awareness that God simply wants honesty, openness, and a trusting reliance on Christ as our Savior. Okay, C.S. Lewis again. The main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of that little dark prison we are all born in. And a little bit further, he warns of the danger of coming to love the prison. At least it's safe in here. Nobody can see me. Okay. Now, uh, one more quote. Okay, Derek Kidner. He says this. Adam's retreat into verbal hiding only put a fresh obstacle in the way of mercy. You understand? All the excuses we make, the defenses, the fig leaves that come, all we're really doing is we're putting an extra hurdle in between us and mercy. You say, oh, and where's mercy in this passage? Go to verse 21. The Lord God, and just pause there. Do you remember how when God was making everything, interacting with Adam and Eve, He was the Lord God? The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. When Satan came to tempt, he kept just calling God, God, the powerful one, the creator. But now that God's come back into the garden pursuing His children, it's the Lord God. I'm the covenant-making God, the covenant-keeping God. And in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. 
Listen, Adam and Eve didn't physically die that day. Even Satan didn't die that day. But some little poor innocent animal died that day. It got slaughtered. Why? Because Adam and Eve's psychological desire to cover up was right. It wasn't wrong. Our psychological desire and need to cover up our shame, it's not wrong. It's just where do we take our shame? We try to take it to our own efforts. It's disastrous. It's anti-gospel. You take it to God, and He says, let me provide for you. And what is this? This is the foreshadowing of the Son of God, our sinless Savior, the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, who went and hung on the cross and bore the weight of the wrath of God, and He bore all our shame, right? I mean, think about Christ on the cross. He was stripped naked, and not just physically, but psychologically. All of His protective coverings were gone. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was abandoned and forsaken in our place so that I can take my shame to him and I can get covered and I can get freed. So I think it's Derek Kidman that says again, you can't hide from God. You can only hide in God. If you run to God, if you run to the finished work of Christ, you say, I want to hide here, I want to be covered here. There's, there's mercy all immense and free for, oh my God, it found out me. And what should that do to us when our theology starts to take over our psychology is we start to say, I I can be more honest and open. I don't have to hide. I don't have to lie. I don't have to minimize. I can be honest and open with myself, with other people, with God about my sins and my struggles. And part of that honesty and humility is part of the way that we start cutting at the roots of our sins so that we can be free. But it's not enough just to know the answers at some level. We've got to feel the gospel reality in our hearts so it starts to become the functional operating principle of our whole life. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you came to earth and you took off, in some sense, your royal robe of righteousness and you have shared it with us at great cost to yourself. I pray for myself and I pray for everybody listening. Make that truth more of an experiential reality in our lives so that we can humble ourselves, we can confess our sins, and by your grace we can grow and we can actually start to sin less so there will be less that we feel like we have to cover up. Make us into the men, the women, the humble, honest, grace-filled people that you want us to be. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.